This episode contains, among other things, a deep, frank conversation about the mind-body divide, neurodivergence, giftedness, perfectionism, sameness and diversity, roller derby. Now we're in really interesting territory. Some swear words, a lot of humor, and of course, some challenges and gifts of being bodies. Hey folks, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast, a forum to learn about and liberate the brilliance of your body and ultimately to expand the meaning and experience of intelligence. Join me, Ali Mazay, and other body masters to explore pioneering and varied perspectives on what it means and feels like to be embodied. So many people feel disconnected from their bodies due to emotional or physical pain or even conditioning and lack of education. Others feel quite at home in their bodies yet want to learn to have more pleasure, awareness, and access to the body's guidance. This podcast is for everybody. Each one of my trailblazing guests has studied their own bodies and others' bodies for decades and will share their expertise and unique mission, how to thrive as a body. So join us and reclaim your body's brilliance. My next guest, Rachel Fell, is an independent coach, consultant, and educator decoding true identity in organizational leadership, strategy, brand, and communications. Engaging embodied intelligence, she helps her clients find the core and congruent truth of what they have to offer the world. Rachel is a champion of radical inclusion, recognizing and celebrating diversity, both seen and unseen. Uncommonly creative and capable, she excels in challenging self-leaders, entrepreneurs, and organizations to go beyond their prior prejudices and preconceptions of what is possible. Her sweet spot is where the interconnectedness underpinning evolution, living systems, embodied psyche, and expressing identity meet. In addition to working with organizations and businesses on their most complex challenges, Rachel coaches neurodivergent and neurocomplex adults, guiding them on their journeys to understanding, acceptance, and success. Herself assessed as neurodivergent in 2018, she's also a published author and speaker on the topic. I am so thrilled to have Rachel Fell with me today, and this podcast may not have come into being had it not been for all her support and guidance along the way of its creation. It's because of her that I was able to really understand that everything I've done in my life, going back to my thesis in college and all that I was looking into as a kid and exploring and experiencing, had this through line that has come to fruition in this podcast, exploring and advocating for the brilliance of the body. So thank you to Rachel, and I hope you also benefit from listening to her particular brand of brilliance. I'm so happy to see you again. (laughs) Yeah, always, always, always fun to jam with you. Yeah. So we're just going to launch in because you know so much about Descartes, the philosopher and the Cartesian divide, and it is the cornerstone of what all of us contend with on a daily basis if you're living in the industrial world. And I think it's worth really breaking down and describing those two things. So what is the Cartesian divide and who was Descartes? Yeah. 
You know, I don't think Descartes intended this to go the way it's it's gone. The more I've looked into the origins of him and his work, I'm not sure the intention and the influence match. Um, but essentially, if you've ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am, that's Descartes. And when we say the Cartesian divide, that is what we're talking about. So the shorthand here is really that in a lot of explicit ways and some more subtle ways, our concept of self is very allegiant to our thinking mind, our thoughts, that there's this over-orientation to thoughts and not the full human intelligence of the body. So we oftentimes think of intelligence as the thinking mind, as the intellect, which is amazing. The human prefrontal cortex and that big, beautiful brain that we all carry around there's a lot of amazingness in there, but intelligence means more than just the thinking mind. So we have this interesting kind of split, which permeates our human self-concept, which is, I think, therefore I am. I think we're at this really interesting inflection point. There's an invitation to step back from that, to really see it, and to get curious about what intelligence might really mean or be. I think it's all the more fascinating because you are somebody and the only person that I know of who actually, despite and be, perhaps because of your great brilliance and your neurodivergence, you have described that you don't think to process or you don't think to be aware of your intelligence and your environment and your relationships and what you're going to say. Is that accurate? Because I can't even imagine that because I've got pretty much a ticker tape going on yeah. in my brain. It's very, very verbal internally. And okay. it sounds like it isn't for you. So talk about that because you're quote unquote thinking, it sounds like in a very different way than a lot of us are. Yeah, human processing is fascinating. And this is absolutely the follow on from this exploration of the nature of intelligence. We are all the same and different. And when I do neurodiversity focused coaching or speaking or facilitating, I really frame it in that lens of humans, same species. We're all the same. We come with the same sort of standard issue species based construction. But we have all of these differences, and some of those differences are scene differences, I like to call them. So we're super visually oriented creatures. Our sight is our strongest sense as human beings. So we really prioritize what we can see oftentimes. But there's also all of these unseen differences in how we process information. And so that's really the shorthand on what neurodiversity is, is that we all are diverse in how we process and move information through our body minds. And for me, yeah, there's been this really interesting journey to self-reflection, um, being open and curious about the nature of intelligence and how thinking works. And as I've explored those things, both in theory and practice, lived experience, reflection, I've come to realize that my own processing is pretty nonverbal. I don't hear my thoughts. I don't see them. They kind of come up from my body. They're very, very organic and very ad hoc. 
I would say. So it's pretty quiet up here. And the more I talk to people and explore this with my clients, with my friends, just in general, read about, study, no two human beings process information exactly alike. We can really get into some really interesting off-ramps here around anatomy, physiology, the nature of the human being as a complex living system that's always adapting. So all rooms are neurodiverse. All groups of people are neurodiverse. So everyone kind of has their own unique processing fingerprint, you could say, which starts from a place of, let's say, sensations, how those are synthesized. They move through us lightning speed. We make associations with the past. We audit for the now. And we kind of like spit out this synthesis in the form of, let's say, a thought, a word. It's actually incredible if you slow down and think of it, how brilliant the human body is. It's amazing. So each of us has this unique neurological or processing fingerprint. And then for some of us, how we process is markedly different, different enough to be experienced, different enough to be reflected back to us by somebody outside of our experience. And that's what I define as neurodivergent. So what would you say are both the benefits and the disadvantages of how you uniquely process? Oh, wow. That's a question. (laughs) Yeah. So when we talk about neurodivergence, we can go right to the reductionist model, which seeks to label and compartmentalize. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be limiting. So one thing I do with my clients who show up and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm exploring, I might be ADHD or I might be gifted or I might be autistic. We move to a different kind of exploration that seeks to get more curious about the shape of their own experience. How do you experience your processing differences? What adjectives might you use? What examples can you provide or share? Different kind of perception of time, let's say, or numbers. I'm very kinesthetic with numbers. So there's all of these different reflections I get from my clients. For myself personally, I would say that it's very fast and vast and elastic. Imagine like a drone that is orbiting, let's say the earth or like some sort of sphere. And it's like zooming in and it's zooming out and it's over here and now it's over there. And maybe it's like two places at once connecting the dots and mapping things. Mm -hmm. So subject orientation is really important for me because I'm moving in this way where this connective tissue at scale is always happening for me when I'm working with my clients, actually just in my own life, you know, not just in work. So it's really spatial. It feels very spatial in my body and it's very wide and deep. It's always mapping the relationships between ideas, subjects, where we are now, where we want to go next. I love it. I have so many questions. One of which is, I just have to go for this because one of the many fascinating things about you is that you were a professional roller derby. <laughs> uh, I don't think you say player. What is that? A roller derbyist? I don't know. What you call that. A skater, whatever. Yeah. 
Which sounds like it requires some of those similar sensibilities with this coming in and going out and seeing this, this meta version, and then this minute to the millimeter sense of shape and form and relationship. So am I making that up? Never having even seen a roller derby match, I think, (laughs) years, but tell me about if that is similar, is is that a good physicalization of anything like how you think and process? Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you're using that as an example because I am my subject in the group, in the pack. Sometimes I'm the jammer, sometimes I'm the blocker, but I have to be aware of the whole and of all the parts of the whole at once. And they're never still. And they're never static. It's always evolving and moving both in form and in formlessness as it moves around a circle. So spatially, that's actually an incredible example. And it's not unlike, say, a a bunch of planets in orbit. Yeah. Very chaotic orbit. Very, very chaotic orbit. But yeah. And this piece around the relationship between kinesthetic intelligence, embodied intelligence, and the thinking mind... I was also a gymnast and I was also a classically trained violinist. So you have these couple different examples of when we think of athletes or musicians, that's the kind of intelligence that is happening through the body. You know, Mm -hmm. the mind and the body are one. They're not separate. Unfortunately, this split that we all carry with us, it's not a conscious thing I find in most people where they think they're like a brain in a vat separate from their bodies. But the deep operating system carries that idea. It's this privilege of the thinking mind. And there's this idea that it's separate. But having this experience of playing roller derby for 10 years, yeah, it most certainly influenced how I think and how I process. So it's interesting that when we've talked in the past, you've described your youth being more extreme and and at times you could even call it dissociated I think you would actually have used that word yeah so it's interesting to me that on one hand you you've been intensely athletic in your life so super duper physical and you've also been super duper intellectual I would say academic but that's another (laughs) topic about how you and I chose not to really go for the academic track even though we could have So I'm curious about, has that at time felt divergent to you to have these intense polar engagements, shall we say, in a very different way, even though each was feeding the other? Describe how that was then, whether you would toggle between those two poles and did they feel like two poles and whether now, and that's my perception of you, they're really converging and merging Mm. now in a way that they may not have when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I really believe in the need for all different kinds of mapping and especially meta mapping to really zoom out and explore the nature of the beliefs we carry about how reality works. So I think before I had a model to connect, let's say, psychomotor intelligence and creative intelligence and emotional intelligence with intellectual intelligence, or even to get a languaging in a category for existential intelligence, which has always been my leading driver, the force that I can't help but follow. I did not have a meta model or a way to place these things. So I think it certainly did contribute to feeling more 
fractured in terms of self-concept on both the literal level of Rachel, unique human being, and then also humans in general. This piece around whole body, full body intelligence, what is the model we use to put Humpty Dumpty back together. (laughs) And I would posit that the model isn't even as important as the fact that there is one to bridge this divide, to say that, yes, there are multiple types of intelligences that we as humans have and carry, and that we can play with and access all of them. Each of us has that capacity within us. Having that Cartesian divide bridged. I was in a really interesting time where I was having all these physical symptoms and going through kind of a existential crisis, positive disintegration, and just learning about the Cartesian divide and seeing how I carried it in myself. So many of the symptoms started to resolve. I now do this with some of my clients. And it's amazing to see how having a new model of self can help the mind body relax. Can you give an example of that, like a particular symptom or a particular revelation that you had that bridged that gap? Yeah, it may sound really uh, (laughs) basic and obvious, but when I was going through this positive disintegration, there were all these symptoms that were moving through my body, nebulous, flaring. I went to see a number of different specialists who would look at a system, neurology or circulatory and, and cardiac or you know whatever it might be. And in speaking about this with a peer and a friend who could explore at this existential level, as basic as it might seem, it's like your sub and unconscious is trying to get your attention, Rachel. This is your body, your sub and unconscious intelligence trying to get your attention because you are so locked in to your thinking mind as your only way of exploring the world. These symptoms may very well be, hey, pay attention to me. And it was only after she was able to give me the intellectual robustness that I needed the relationship between the autonomic nervous system and all of the systems affected and the symptoms themselves and this piece about the processing all existing outside of conscious awareness, it was like there was this cohesion, this space, this relaxation. It was almost an embodied experience of the divide being crossed and me coming into my body consciously, maybe for the first time ever. If that Mm. makes sense. It does make sense. And it also begs the question of, well, then who was driving or in or (laughs) fighting your body when you were roller derbing? As you and I have spoken about, I, I have issues with the preposition in the body because to me it implies a, a duality that at least I aspire to to not have, you know, and I do believe that duality is a continuum. And some moments I feel completely merged. In some moments, I feel very disconnected. And I think that's probably true of pretty much all people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People probably are, are constantly merged, you know, whereas human animals tend to be somewhere on that spectrum. And many of us tend to be at one end or the other. So, yeah, let's go back to roller derbing. Were you not in your body then? I certainly was. Now we're in really interesting territory of the nature of I. Hmm. So I'd like to, I <laughs> would like to shift us to, if it's okay with you, this sure. exploration of conscious or let's say aware 
And then the sub and unconscious. So I'm not thinking about my heart beating right now. I'm not thinking about breathing. I'm not thinking about digesting the scrambled eggs I ate for breakfast this morning. (laughs) We can write that off and minimize that all we want. But that intelligence is mind-blowingly intricate, sophisticated, amazing. When people talk about technology, are you kidding me? (laughs) This is insane. And so here we come back to, I think, therefore I am, the privilege we give conscious awareness, which we orient and push through thought. So one of the things I do with clients and teams I work with is to slowly pull meta-awareness apart from the thinking mind. We have this beautiful thing called metacognition, which a lot of people say is part of what makes humans human. Now, we don't know about animals. We really don't. We shouldn't try to act like we do. But this capacity to be self-referential and to see the self, I was really orienting I with conscious thought. But the truth is I was skating. My sub and unconscious running the show, my body running the show. It's not that I wasn't thinking about it, what I was going to do next, but anytime roller derby, gymnastics, violin, I am letting a different kind of intelligence, let's say, take the lead. Yeah. That's still me. I'm all yes. of it. And this, this duality thing, I think if I may address that is really interesting because as humans, do we ever transcend duality? We live in both matter and a formless sort of experience that's inextricable from this matter. For a long time, science was material and immaterial are not the same thing. Well, now we know better. They are just different forms of the same thing. So duality, we don't ever get out of that as a human. Can duality coexist with wholeness or oneness? I think so. I think it's not a matter of finding some either or, like you're saying, you're oscillating. It's more of where am I now, for me at least. Yeah. So right at the moment, part of my conscious awareness is with this big ass fly that is moving around. (laughs) Move around after it. So just (laughs) hold on a second. Sure, sure, sure. Because I I don't want, hold on. (laughs) Fly out the window. (laughs) Really riles up my doggy. Wants to pull your awareness from you. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's actually a really good example because it is allowing something external to guide my consciousness or pull my consciousness outside <laughs> my immediate. No, seriously, my immediate space and yours, you know? Yeah, totally. I just, I can't help but giggle that we're continuing to talk about it. And all you see in the frame is a fly swatter. <laughs> it's literally flying all around the room and my consciousness is literally following it. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like, okay, now I'm bringing it back right here. Yeah. Well, you were always here. You just weren't leading. You were following. You were, you know what I mean? You were always here. Yes. But when I'm here with you right now and I'm looking at you, and as you were saying, we're very visual creatures and what we look at tends to be where our conscious awareness goes, where the attention goes, the energy flows, that kind of thing. But also 
I'm feeling my body as much as I can while I'm also feeling and focusing and listening to you. And I'm also aware of my thought process and a combination of constructing and receiving questions to both follow and guide the conversation, you know? Plus the fly, no small task. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and what you're talking about, that meta-awareness is in many different places at once. And that in and of itself is such an interesting experience of orienting, leading the self back. Where am I now? Yeah. Yeah. Gil Headley in the previous episode was is talking about my body is where my consciousness is hanging out right now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he was describing it as basically a location for awareness. And yet again, that experience in some ways, there's some aspect of awareness that does leave the body that expands out of my own skin in order to try to anticipate where something other than me or part of me is going so that I can follow it. So back to a sense of self that does then also get into peripersonal space and how we can extend our body maps beyond our own physical bodies. Mm -hmm. And we can extend those potentially anywhere in the world. Every time we're thinking about somebody or hearing of a tragedy or whatever, we are expanding our sense of self or connecting in some way. And then what's self in that case, you know, that self is so much more fluid or, you know, you could say plastic than we often are taught that it is. Yeah, that's a great, great point. I'm coming to realize that a lot of my work has to do with identity which actually is the nature of the self. We can explore that at that meta level and look at it through this very relational living systems lens. Sometimes I'll work with clients, personal coaching clients, and there's this deep question, this question that I think we all carry with us, who am I? But here again, an overemphasis on material reductionism and having answers and having it figured out Oftentimes, one of the things I'm doing is reminding them that they're a process, not a product. And then the same is true when I work with organizations or businesses, because brand, I think, is really just identity, but there's more complexity because there's this relationship and intentions between the organization and their target audiences, and they're trying to sell, but who are they and how are they selling? So what is the nature of the self? And where am I now? All sit at the core of that stuff. And if we think of ourselves as static and solid and not relational and not influenced or permeable, everything's in that beautiful reciprocity all the time, including our own self-relationship, that self with self-connection, which is what I was describing earlier, that I bridged the divide on that sort of conscious thinking mind. And the self and the intelligence that wasn't mapped as a self. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? I totally see what you mean. And I love that you're putting it that way, that a lot of people don't map the body as an aspect of self, not just an aspect, but a full expression of self. I I just wanted to mention, I I hadn't seen this before, but I've experienced it as your client, Mm -hmm. that logos and brands are alive which I hadn't thought of before. You just said what you said. They are a living avatar, really. Yes. Yes. People call it the DNA, but I've never gotten the sense of DNA of a company being 
alive and vital and something that is changing. And those genes are turning on and turning off depending on how we're interrelating with the world. I think that's part of your brilliance. And what you do is you help people. It's too cliche to say, find their DNA, because it's more like find the living dialectic really between how we represent ourselves in the world and how that is an ever-growing process. Uh As you say, it's a verb that might have a symbol to represent something that hopefully is so overarching that it will continue to represent us for any number of years of a company, for example. And yet, how do you keep that alive and vital and allowed to evolve. So I don't know if you want to say more about branding, considering that's not specifically what we're talking about, but in a sense, a corporation is also a body. And there also can be a huge divide between the body of the corporation and the selves that form it. Yes. Yes. And the larger and the more complex the organization, the larger and more complex. So any organization, I think, can shift to work through the lens of a living system, seeing itself as a living system. That is another way to breach the Cartesian divide and this emphasis that we have on materialism exclusively. It's like, I see it, it's solid, it's real, it's not moving, it's not going anywhere. But the thing is, everything in my body Everything in my computer right now is vibrating. Atoms and molecules are moving. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. So if everything is in a constant state of movement, then nothing is static. And we can't take for granted that something is built and complete because the truth beneath it is that it's not. Everything is living, both influenced and influencing. So an organization is no different. And this is a really, really unique approach to brand work that I don't see a lot of people taking. We have to start by taking inventory. Where are we now? And who are we talking about? Is the organization the subject? We can look at this. This gets complex, right? When we look at somebody, if you don't mind, I'll use you as an example. There's Allie, the whole person, and what she believes influences her work and why she does it. And then there's Allie, who has this wealth of experience doing multiple different things in the context of work. But that work that you do is not necessarily needing to reflect the whole of Allie, the person. We, we scope it down. It's like it's a separate subject, let's say, in the context of work. So one thing I see solopreneurs try to do all the time is use their professional brand as a way to see their whole selves. Well, yes, gonna, as you say, lovingly push back a bit on that. One of the things that I have found so rich, so transformational working with you is that I feel like now my branding and what I'm offering does reflect all of me. It does feel like it's the whole greater than the sum of its parts. It's holographic and each part is reflecting this greater whole. And that is part of the magic of what you do, my dear. So, so yes, yes, it's because we take the time 
and we include the whole self, but we don't necessarily need to compress the whole self into the work self. It feels expanded. It feels the exactly. opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's actually a concentric circle. Think of it that way. Everything that you share. Fractal. I'd call it fractal. Yeah. Fractal. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Fractal dynamic. But yeah, by virtue of approaching it in this very holistic way through the lens of the work you do is inextricable from the human you are. And in fact, the human you are is what motivates you to do what you do, what you care about, why you do it, your philosophy, your methodology. So it is contained in the scope of work. There's space for a whole person outside of that. They're the same thing, but there's a little more containment, let's say, in the work self. So this works with organizations too. Who are we? What are we trying to do? Are we clear on that? You have to take inventory. It's not something that you just put on a shelf and file away. Identity is very much a living thing, whether you're exploring it personally, professionally, or as a very complex organizational system. Yeah. And to be fair to myself, I don't want to imply that I am limited to even my expansive work experience and offerings. I mean, there's lots of me as with everybody that isn't expressed literally or specifically in what I might be offering, of course. Right, but, right. But again, what I'm talking about is bringing to the fore a sense of congruency, which you've got such a good whiffer for because man, if something's not congruent, you just sniff it out. And, you know, <laughs> you're, you're really, like a bloodhound. You, you totally are. I, I was, I was yeah, thinking more like truffles, but yeah, there's, there's a lot to that. But again, I want to bring that back to that congruency as opposed to a split and feeling our body only when it's in pain, but not identifying with it and thinking that when my heart starts going bad, that means that it has nothing to do with what I might be feeling or any trauma or tragedy or difficulties. If it's just a machine who needs a new carburetor or something, and it becomes, as you say, very reductionist, you know, as opposed to keeping that sense that constantly our thoughts and our feelings are reflecting our bodies, our bodies are reflecting our thoughts and feelings and our culture and our environments. And it's all part of this big constantly interactive soup, as you say, or as Gil Headley says, there's trillions of chemical and just genius reactions that are going on physiologically in the body processing in every moment. So obviously there's tons to just live every single moment. It's amazing. Body as where am I now? And body as a living system feels really important, potent takeaways from what we're exploring right now. The body of identity is also a living thing. So treating bodies not as static, not as machines, not as non-living, I think that's our invitation. Definitely. This thing about sentience, we have a tendency to, as I love how you use the term privilege the intellect privilege the cognitive mind. 
by mm-hmm. cognitive, I've read different definitions of what cognitive actually means. But in this case, let's just call it the word cruncher <laughs> aspect. A linear, one right answer. It's cause and effect. And oftentimes it's conditioned to basically, yes, there is one correct answer. <laughs> X equals, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or the slice and dicer, basically mm-hmm. the left brain functioning and perspective on the world, which has a tendency, as you say, to see things as static, to believe what we see with our eyes, <laughs> and instead of being able to tolerate this constant moving aliveness even what we consider inanimate objects, which I have a fantastic conversation with Philip Shepard about, it seems to be so scary, at least to our left brain orientation, to be able to accept, let alone engage with the world as all of it being alive and being part and parcel of of our own expanded self. We seem to really think that somehow we're going to feel more secure by this reductionistic way of coming into yeah. the smaller sense of tight, contracted, rigidified, compartmentalized self. It's pretty wild why we ever came to believe, and this is back to Descartes, that that was somehow safer and more secure and more predictable. Well, and I think what we're really talking about here is science and spirituality come from the same place, human orientation to the mystery. And we are explorers by nature. This takes me right to the fear of death and our own mortality. What you're talking about here is this control or this naming, this knowing, this certainty. If I come back to the body and then bring in maybe now this spirituality part, which has moved in, you know, religion, whatever, dogma, oftentimes I notice that people either orient to control and an over-orientation to free will or to fate and an orientation towards, I throw my hands up, I have no influence. And I wonder a lot about coming back into this beautiful connection between science and spirituality that may invite us to really explore through the lens of embodied non-duality. And when I say non-duality, I don't mean we transcend duality. It's that things are dual and they're all connected. I'm distinct from you. I am my own person. My skin and my body stops here, except for maybe all of it is out here too. And I can go out there and we can meet and overlap and we're connected. It's same and different, separate and connected. I'm infinite and I'm finite. So this piece about control and how that comes from a place of this needing to know and be right in the service of what? If we actually come back, it's well in the service of exploration, but the slicer and dicer is trying to keep us safe. It's trying to help us understand, to know, but what does it mean to know something? How do we know? And ultimately, why do we want to know? These are very pragmatic questions, and these are ways of exploring that people like to sweep under the rug. But they're really, really extra pragmatic now when we're in a collective situation that's very kind of melty and not so solid. This isn't the world of my baby boomer parents anymore. You can't take certain things for granted that they're just going to exist in the future. The world is burning and, and things are changing all the time in a way that we can see now. You're such the queen of and. You're queen and rather than ever. <laughs> <laughs> you always advocate for the and as soon as you go from or 
to and I don't know if this is actual, but it sure feels like I go from my left hemisphere all of a sudden to my right one, or I lower down in my body as soon as I feel the word and the meaning of and. Yeah. Inclusion is really strangely simple, but really complex. And it's funny. I think language can be embodied. I think we can play with and explore the intellect and the experience of how we think as a way to deepen our relationship with different ways of knowing and exploring. So even that little modifier, it does something for sure. Yeah. (laughs) We're not zooming in anymore. Back to my own processing. If we're going in or we're going in and we're having to let some other subjects, some other contexts fall away. If we go and we're either staying right where we are or we're zooming out. So let's go to the fly, the dog and the humans again. (laughs) Okay. So when I was on that fly, I was definitely in the or that fly or my conversation. I'm going to get it or I'm not going to get it. I'm going to be able to let it out the window or I'm not. My dog Noosh was also in the mix. She was in the mix and ultimately she was also in this orbit (laughs) going on in this kind of chaotic experience. And then there was this orbit between me and you. And and then I was feeling the orbit of whoever's listening. So there's the fly and then there's the fly and the dog who are in their own thing. And then there's Rachel and the fly and the dog. And there there was all these different ellipses going on. (laughs) (laughs) And ultimately so much going back to the and And this touches me to say this, but then I won't be able to control it. There's going to be gaps in this podcast and it could sound unprofessional and Mm -hmm. I could, I could lose something if I'm not the one controlling it. Do I stop the recording because people shouldn't hear that? Because that's not what people do is include a fly (laughs) and and a thing, you know, all this stuff. (laughs) Or is it, that's fucking life right now. And it is the manifestation of so much of what we're talking about. And ultimately, it was Noosh who took care of the whole situation. It had to happen in in their own time. There was just this whole dance that just went on. Right, right. So, So isn't it so much about can we accept what the world is doing with us? Yeah. Even when we don't like it. You know, there it is. We're we're saying the same thing through the lens of this real time experience that you're having. It's it's bringing it all together. And I would say actually in a really beautiful and poignant way, control is not the same thing as leadership and Mm -hmm. self-leadership. Being a human is messy and it's limited and you can't control everything. And now we get into, okay, when we work together, one of our recurring themes is I I challenge you to let go of some of the polish, right? To let it be a little bit messy sometimes. Yeah. Redefining perfect, or let's pull perfect from the lexicon entirely. It's like, what is here? What is present right Right. now? (laughs) I can can feel it in my body immediately. It feels dangerous to let that go for all my own family of origin reasons and standards and all the stuff that felt like, oh, but then I won't belong. Then I won't matter. I won't be loved. Right. Right. (laughs) On the other hand, we tend to kind of shit on perfectionism a lot as it just being this neurotic thing. There's also a lot of love in perfectionism, love in wanting to create something 
that is just this beautiful jewel to share with people that is really pulling and blossoming and finding and melting open the most that I can be or offer or see or articulate or paint or, you know, whatever it is in all of us. I so value that. I fill my house with things that I could tell people really cared about and they created with their bodies and their minds and their souls and maybe their hearts. So I just, I just want to put a plug in for perfectionism. And of course there's a difference between mastery or aspiration or dedication and neurotic. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough unless it looks and is in a certain way. I get that, but just trying to say that. (laughs) Our protectors like perfectionism in the paradigm of your developmental context. We don't want to throw that under the bus. It's not wrong. It's not bad. We have compassion for that adaptation, but can we rewrite the code that runs that definition and that behavior by being really curious, but in a way that asks us to slow down and say, how do humans human? And what is intelligence and what scripts are we running about perfection? And if we were consciously choosing to redefine those scripts, what might they look like? And maybe they look like the fly and the dog and the conversation illustrating exactly all these things that we've been talking about. You know, there's no control over that. But here we are being able to use that as a really poignant distillate for so much of what we've explored today. It was definitely a living constellation. Yeah, big time. (laughs) When you were just talking, I was thinking about the parallel between diversity and the diversity of beauty in bodies. My other project, the Victory Body Project, is so much about the diversity of bodies and yet the unity that we also share. And I was thinking about how if we were to visualize the conventionality of intelligence or of an intellect that is acceptable, it would be as narrow as a skinny body, yes, a skinny yeah. white body yes. that, you know, only poses. <laughs> yes, you got it. I'm exaggerating. You know, it's a stereotype, but unfortunately it has permeated our media and our world and our self-concepts for a lot of us. And what we compare ourselves to is that narrow conventionality of intellect or of physicality. So it was just coming to mind when I was listening to you. And if we could diversify our sense of intelligence as we diversify our love and appreciation of bodies in all their forms and vice versa, wouldn't the world be so much better off? Right. Well, that's our invitation. And we start with the scene because that's more tangible and variations in processing. Some of us are more oriented to the abstract or the unseen. There's probably physiological basis for this. We start with the scene, but we can move these same understandings. You're so beautifully bridging these two worlds of the seen and unseen right now to Mm -hmm. the unseen. Like that analogy, that metaphor 
perfect. So if we truly value diversity and inclusion, it's my opinion that exploring this both seen and unseen is incredibly important. And we can be compassionately honest with ourselves about where we are placing value. I do see a celebration of all bodies. We're moving in the right direction. And we're mm. still having to work with the vestiges of sameness as acceptance, conformity as acceptance. I belong if. And that's something we can dive really deep on as human beings because mere neurons and we want to see ourselves reflected in others. But now capitalism joins the chat. And over time, this is the ideal body type. When we talk about privilege, I would invite us to move away from talking about that interpersonally and looking at it in terms of how norms influence privilege and definitions of beauty, intelligence, these sorts of things. I've, I've slowly come into being very open about saying that I am unconventional. And that's scary because convention is safety. You know, if you're the one that thinks in a different way or explores in a different way, challenging convention explicitly feels and seems dangerous. What is privileged by virtue of cultural and societal norms? And to continue that conversation into intelligence, into processing, into diversity of both the seen and unseen. I have a great example of that because a few hours ago, I was outside talking to a Scottish farmer who's a neighbor. And I was thinking about intelligence and the intelligence of farmers. Mm. I was asking specifically about his ability to read the weather, his ability to bite a kernel of barley and know whether mm. it needs to be sprayed. Unfortunately, the conversation was about Roundup and its sad use, but sprayed or harvested or whether the crop will do this or that or be used for this or that. Talk about a population of masterful, pretty body-oriented people. This guy has worked with his body and as his body probably every day of his life. Mm -hmm. Yet how much respect and how much remuneration is there in somebody who is working with that and applying intelligence yeah. in that particular way? And it makes me think about the U.S. and how disenfranchised so many people feel particularly in the middle of the country, a lot of farmers, a lot of people who work with the hands, a lot of tradespeople, you come from. Live you know, in this place, yes, yes. Live in this place. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm just wondering how much of the othering that tends to go on more in the middle of the country, right. partially because people don't tend to feel valued. They don't right. tend to feel respected right. and honored and again, remunerated for their particular brilliance, whether it's because they can make the best damn peach pie on the planet or because they know the rain's coming in three days or in two hours, or they can listen to a, a car go by and they can hear exactly what's not there. Or another guy who came to move gravel around and he knew exactly by looking at a huge mound of gravel exactly how much he needed to put in his dump truck to fill exactly this particular, right. I exactly. mean, to the wheelbarrow full. It was like, damn, that is brilliance. So anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to <laughs> how much daily expression abounds all around us with these different ways that we're all intelligence. I mean, a blueberry falls from your mouth and you catch it with a hand, you know, a right. fraction. Right. 
right. you could call that reflex or something more automated, but there's just so many ways that our body brilliance is loud and clear and just waiting to be appreciated in ourselves and each other. Well, I, I think you're really pointing out some very legitimate aspects of what people would call anti-intellectualism. We think about the political divide in America. It's this prioritization of intellect and the white collar job and the sort of definitions of intelligence that are very narrow and akin to the skinny white body. These keep us separated biodiversity is my North Star, and not just human diversity seen and unseen, but biodiversity. So we really got to get right with sameness and difference. There's an example going on in my city right now, big proposal to tear down uh, a giant section of the freeway and uh, build up the downtown for growth and more economic impact and all these things. And I'm watching the proponents of this proposal basically say that anybody that argues with it is not progressive and anti-intellectual and anti-growth. And I'm somebody that feels strongly that we need to slow down because this legitimate reshaping of the form of the city I live in will have incredible consequences to the living system. So have we explored these influences, this reciprocity through the living systems lens? I get the sense that we're looking at a tactic as a strategy here and that it's a very power over kind of approach where it's like, we're going to do this. It's going to be this. It's going to equal this and everybody's going to be happy. And it's very linear and it's very top down power over. And this kind of throwing anybody who has an objection under the bus as anti-progressive or anti-intellectual, it's off. There is an intelligence here. There's a reciprocity that's asking to be engaged with here. And the people stewarding this project have a responsibility to dance with that and to be inclusive in it, I believe. I'm right. You're wrong. We're right. They're wrong. We're good. They're bad. How is that in and of itself an expression of top-down intellectual first as power over, as supremacy, as patriarchy, as dominator energy? I'm not having it. <laughs> Sounds like they need you, Rachel. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Thanks for letting me veer off with that example. But I think it's a great example because just being inclusive, do we value multiple perspectives? If we come into the room assuming that we are correct, what are we sacrificing? What aren't we seeing? It's that ego thing, but that's super connected to an intellectual first paradigm. Well, it's very slicey and dicey, isn't it? And the other thing is that I do think there's a degree of denial in this as well, because all of this is still assuming that life is going to continue basically as we know it, throwing in a few more trees and maybe a vegetable garden, you know, a couple electric plug-in stations, and then somehow <laughs> that's going to cut it. And right. the problem is the shit's obviously hitting the fan. And if we don't drop more into the foundational wisdom of our bodies, we're going to have a big problem designing the solutions for how we're going to survive this whole predicament we're in for sure. Beautifully Damn. stated. Beautifully, beautifully stated. It's scary. Mm -hmm. It is scary. It's like how we how has to change. Wow. How we how has to change. And so we have that invitation and this podcast and 
all of the work that you do, the work that I do, the work that all of the people you're interviewing. And there's so many of us out there that in one way or another are attempting to live inclusion and how we how in earnest, inclusion in earnest. I really feel like this broadening of the definition of intelligence is a way into moving out of this reductionist and polarity-based paradigms. We're never going to agree with each other. We're never going to be completely the same as each other. But if we can be same and different and learn in ourselves to allow for that difference through standing in our own, it's not a competition. We don't all have to be on the same page, but we do have to learn to include and be with the collective diversity. (laughs) I think that's how. I think so too. I just wish for us to stop feeling threatened by difference. Yeah. Our bodies are so brilliant. And let's say the patterns are laid down birth to three, birth to seven and birth to 17. We each individually have a really unique opportunity and responsibility, I would go so far as to say, to develop a relationship with what lives in the body's belief system. And we can learn how to slow down and engage that. What does my body believe? Sometimes your body does believe something is unsafe that actually is not, and it's okay. So this piece about working with meta-awareness, there's an incredible show that I love called Midnight Gospel. It's this one season animated series on Netflix. The very last episode in the series It's a super trippy animated thing. The protagonist and the guy that started the series is having a conversation with his mother. And his mother was this brilliant, brilliant psychologist. And she's basically explaining how to play with interoceptive awareness, how to get out of your mind and get into your body and why that's important. And the way she explains it is so solid. It's so solid. It's so good. I encourage everybody who has any interest to watch it because it's amazing. But just practicing that, each of us does have a responsibility, I think, to bridge our own divide, coming full circle here. And when we bridge our own divide, we are much more set up to actually connect. People talk a lot about fragility. That starts in the self. Can I be with my beliefs, body, mind, awareness, cultivating safety here? so that I can connect with others and so that I can receive differences of opinion and differences of insight and differences of perspective. I have no idea what other people are feeling, but I do know that cultivating that safety in myself allows me to be much more able to engage with others of difference without feeling threatened, without feeling like I need to make them wrong. This courage to go out in the world and be truly inclusive seems to require us to be in our full body intelligence and to bring the body along. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I do. I completely do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What a fantastic conversation, Rachel. We could keep talking. I don't think I've asked you one question. What was on our list, but I'm confident you'll come back again and we'll have more of these because I could talk to you forever. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be be super fun. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited about what you're doing. I've had the pleasure of being on the back end of working with you and working through your why. And I'm so stoked for this podcast and for you. It's incredible stuff and the world needs it for sure. Thanks, Rachel, for just being 
be in the wind beneath my wings. As they say. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Thank you again. And I adore you. Happy to be here, Allie. Yeah. I hope you found this episode inspiring. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Brilliant Body Podcast and spread the word to all the other brilliant bodies you know who might be interested in some insight and inspiration. If you'd like to learn more about the many ways I'm encouraging and guiding the wider world to reclaim the brilliance of the body, please visit my website at www.alimezey.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next episode and beyond, reclaim your brilliant body. This episode was written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Ali Mazay. Thanks for additional editing to Rachel Fell and Nina Damour. Thanks to Florence Popoff for my social media management, and to Blair, Mr. One Man Band Wilson, for my theme music.